Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. This is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 40. The whole valley, the corpses, the ashes, and all the fields as far as the Kidron Valley to the corner of the horse gate to the east will be holy to the Lord. It will never be uprooted or demolished again. There's a history here. People sacrificing their children in hopes of having a better life is not actually a new thing. Worship of Molech and Chemosh involved the sacrifice of one's child in hopes that you would prosper and that your hardships would go away. Or even in some cases that the weather would change. This has become a new form of an argument for abortion. Climate change is kind of a fill-in-the-gap religion for the godless. And while I don't deny that the climate is changing, I'll never be convinced by doomsday sayers because there's a long history of all of them having failed from the upper ranks of the Harvard faculty uh, to Oscar-winning documentaries that showed my hometown going underwater 20 years ago that still haven't come true. All right, I don't believe in that form of apocalyptic prophecy. I believe in what God said. And what I'm especially skeptical of is a case that is based supposedly on science. I think it's actually scientism. There's more than semantics there. They're fundamentally different things. That says that abortion somehow helps this, that the population is just booming and we are running out of resources and out of space. It's not the case. Divide the world's population by the square footage of any state in the U.S. alone and we can all fit, even Rhode Island. This is a straight-up genocide rationale. And the argument that sacrificing our children will give us all a better life and will change the weather is not a new thing. It was Molech worship. It was Chemosh worship. Everybody who placed their babies on the arms of a brazen idol with a fire in its belly and watched the child writhe, scream, and die, and burn did so for fundamentally the same reasons that a woman would have an abortion today. They would sacrifice their children to make their lives better and change the weather. Today, women will sacrifice their children to make their lives better and to change the weather. It's the same exact practice, same effect. It's the same evil spiritual deceit from the onset. Even worshipers of Molech and Chemosh may not have literally believed in Molech and Chemosh. They're motivated by fear. They're afraid. And they had this distorted God who seems unappeasable. That's what happened in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 40. This plot of land where people would go and sacrifice their children, the ashes that are named in verse 40 here are the ashen remains of babies were burned alive as sacrifices to Molech and to Chemosh. Now, as we'll continue to study this week, you'll see how Jesus would draw upon that. And that would be the imagery from which we get the fiery imagery of hell. Unlike the mercy that God showed to Cain, there would come a threshold whereupon God would do to the parents exactly what the parents did to their children. That is to say, instead of showing them incredible mercy, he would treat them justly. It's perfectly fair that what a parent does to their child, the parent ought to have no objection 
should it be done to him or her. This is serious business. The sacrifice of children for pagan or even atheistic ideologies and selfish purposes has been done for a long time and God abhors it. He articulates thus in his word. We'll talk more this week about the places that this was done and the namesake for hell, uh, which will actually kind of verge into another discussion um, about universalism. Let's zoom out from triage pro-life ministry and let's talk about long-term pro-life ministry because the stakes are so high because this is a straight-up revival of a pagan practice it's not a morally neutral idea and it's certainly not morally good to sacrifice children on any standard it's not morally good even from an atheistic worldview you have to concede this it's not a moral good to chop a baby into pieces it's just not now we spoke yesterday about some of the various factors that influence this. And it may have come as a surprise to you that masculinity actually has a huge bearing on abortion. It sounds like a non sequitur because, especially when it comes to the whole abortion discussion, sometimes men are barred from it, ironically discriminated against because of their sex. No, because you have that genitalia, you're not allowed to have an opinion on this matter. And I wonder how far that goes. I don't have to live an experience to be able to see truth on the matter. If that were the case, everybody would have to live every experience to have any meaningful discussion in any realm other than their own myopic experience. Rather, I'm a pastor, I gotta preach the word. The word of God speaks about this, so I'm gonna speak about it. I pray that if you are my pro-choice friend, that you will listen, you'll understand. Masculinity actually has a huge bearing on this. When I was at the March for Life in Washington, D.C., saw numerous speakers. Speaker of the House of Representatives, Johnson, came up and spoke. Also saw Jim Harbaugh and Greg Laurie closed us out in prayer. And a stat that kept coming up was about the number of women who feel like they are pressured into an abortion. And the, the number of women who regret their abortions after the fact. Every time a woman has an abortion, there's a dude out there somewhere. There's a man out there somewhere. And he seems to get completely off the hook. You know, it's not just a sin to have sex outside of marriage if you're a woman. There's a man as well who's had sex outside of marriage. And by the way, not 100% of abortions are performed on unmarried women. So there's always a man out there somewhere who's involved in this. The easy bad guys are the rapists. Our culture has a particular hatred for rapists, but I don't think it goes as far as God did in the Old Testament. The Old Testament law prescribed capital punishment, immediate execution for a man who committed rape. But what about other guys? What about the systemic effects, to kind of borrow a couple of terms today from my uh, liberal friends in academia, of men failing to be men. A mentor of mine said that it's important for uh, a pastor to have a Bible in his right hand and a newspaper in his left hand, back when newspapers were really a thing. And what he was saying is you're, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're not conforming to the pattern of this world, but you are in fact in it, like a sheep among wolves. And so in order to be able to minister effectively, it's good to just know what is happening. Uh, an article on National Review 
who also wrote something about the March for Life that my son and I were just at, revealed this whole online community I'd never heard of before, and they're called incels. And I don't think that's a derogatory term. If I understand correctly, uh, this is the name that this community has given itself. That's how they refer to themselves. Incel, I-N-C-E-L, is shorthand for involuntarily celibate. And it is a frustrated young man who wishes that he could have sex, but for a variety of factors, is not having any. And what this National Review editor uncovered was a really embittered community. And a documentary uh, that overlapped with the subject also revealed a great deal of vitriol and hatred for women. A common theme, though I'm sure this doesn't apply to everybody in that community, was a hatred for women because perhaps of a sense of entitlement to sex, believing like I'm entitled to sex and I'm not getting it, and therefore I hate women for denying that from me. And then also this really, this really uh, hateful view of women who seem to only want to marry men who are of financial means and it accuses women of being just after money to say that it's not all about being physically attractive, that may be part of it, but they seem to point out the fact that even unattractive men who make a lot of money seem to have women in their lives. And so instead of saying, maybe I should get off the couch and get a job and actually earn a living and move out of my mom's basement, they just hate women and call them materialistic. Here's the thing, those women are doing what is best for their future children. It is smart for a woman to consider the financial sustainability of a future with a man who would impregnate you. And masculinity used to mean self-sacrifice. This is completely lost, it seems, on the incel community. What the Bible tells a husband to do for his wife, you're going to really hate this. If you're an incel, you're going to really hate it. It says that we as husbands are to give ourselves up for our wives, that we are to provide for them and care for them. We are to do for our wives what Christ did for the church, and that is that he gave himself up. He went to death on the cross for his bride, the church, and we as husbands are called to fill that role as Christ in the marriage. So it's way worse than you think, my incel friend. Not only are you to provide financially for your bride, you're to give yourself up for her. You're also to lead your family spiritually. This is what God calls us to do. This is where, go figure, man, the biblical model just works better. The incel community harbors this bitterness towards women, has a very distorted view of just what sex is. This is where, to use another liberal academia term, intersectionality applies. As masculinity is largely on the decline, you know, third wave feminism has given rise to misandry, uh, this kind of just hatred for men, basically. Uh, uh, the, the original wave of feminism was really about, you know, uh, women's suffrage, giving women the right to vote, giving women equal rights within society. And then second wave feminism took on a more embittered turn and uh, tone, and then third wave feminism is just straight up. Uh, anti-man. <laughs> They'll never outright say that, but that's what it comes down to. And they utterly resent any kind of notion of gender roles, and they're also, they're also a snake that is eating its own tail as they can no longer define womanhood. So, meanwhile, 
men, it seems, particularly those who don't have the Holy Spirit of God, who don't believe the Bible, unsaved men, find themselves becoming increasingly angry toward women and have no concept of the pretty strong correlation between sex and baby making. And they resent the idea that they should be expected to even pay for dates, much less pay for the rest of life. There is within, uh, within the, the atheist community a pro-life movement. This was fascinating to me. It's called secular pro-life. The secular pro-life argument looks at the expectation that men who get women pregnant should be forced to pay child support for 18 years or longer. And they say that means that the man has no choice in the matter. That means that you know if the woman doesn't want to be a mother, she can just pay someone or use taxpayer dollars to have her baby killed. But the man has zero say, and his wages get garnished. And so that's unfair to men, therefore I'm pro-life. What this completely, uh, completely overlooks is also like the value of the human life that is lost in an abortion. So the secular pro-life movement completely misses the point and looks at something that's quite petty uh, and materialistic. Uh, but it also totally has a diminished view of masculinity, of men. The reason that there are so many crosses in Arlington Cemetery, which may be on my mind because, you know, we passed by it not just two days ago, is that men have been giving their lives. This is what men do. We give ourselves up because we're made in the image of our Creator. We're created male and female. Men will do masculine things because they're men. And there is no higher calling within masculinity than self-sacrifice. The prime axiom of masculinity, as personified by Jesus, is self-sacrifice. Modern masculinity is suffering, and men who are too shy to speak up about this perhaps in a classroom setting will gravitate to clandestine online communities and vent their hatred, and they'll gravitate toward what appear to be alpha male voices who really emphasize the physicality of masculinity with no concept of self-sacrifice. And so firebrand voices who speak without biblical wisdom and have no concept of self-sacrifice, but are actually quite, quite self-centered, self-aggrandizing, they are inspiring to dudes in the incel community. When men act like men and we take responsibility and we provide for the women in our lives, we see the abortion rate go down. I believe that masculinity has a direct effect on the abortion rate. The more that men act like men and give of themselves. Okay, if you get a woman pregnant, marry her to the glory of God. And then, man, my secular pro-life friends are going to hate me for this. Don't just pay child support. Pay everything. Pay it all. Buy the woman and the baby a house. And meet every single need that that woman has financially for the rest of her life life. So no, I don't really align with the secular pro-life view. This is not a spiritually neutral matter. This is not, this is not something that you can look at moralistically and claim neutrality if you're an atheist. It's something that is in fact evil. Abortion is evil. It's not a new thing. It's ancient and it's pagan. It's been happening since the days of Jeremiah. And people do it for effectively the same reasons that they did before. Now, we spoke yesterday about 
the antidote to triage pro-life ministry. If there's a scared mother, help meet her physical needs right now. But the more that men act like men, provide for their families, give themselves up. If you get a woman pregnant, get down on a knee, buy a ring, marry her, provide for every one of her needs and the baby's needs for the rest of their lives and yours as much as you can, as long as you can. Not just a percentage of your income, offer it all. I believe that the more men act like men, the fewer women are put in a position where abortion even crosses their minds. Because when my wife would get pregnant, it was a joyous moment. It never crossed my wife's mind once, nor would it ever, even if her life were in danger medically. I know for a fact my wife, even if delivering a baby would cost her her life, no, there's no amount of convincing I could do to dissuade her from having the baby, stepping forward in faith, taking a risk. So it's my job to provide for her. And I do, I do. I give her anything that she needs and wants and asks for. I'm not a rich man, but I do what I can. And God has always been good to our family. And so my wife has never been in that situation. It's because we hold to the biblical worldview. So if you are part of the incel community, if you are part of the secular pro-life community, you may not like what I have to say, but it's way better for women because it means that there are no scared pregnant women. There are beloved brides whose lives are set. They are, they are funded fully for life by a hardworking man who's ready to give himself up for her. That's a much better deal. So hopefully I've made the case about uh, the intersectionality between uh, masculinity and the abortion rate. Uh, tomorrow we'll talk a little bit more about uh, birth control, surprisingly, and its effect on the abortion rate and womanhood and what that means. And that will lead into a discussion about uh, the decline in, in marriage. So pray for men. Pray for men. Uh, pray that men would be men the young men would rise up, adopt the biblical worldview, and set out to please the Lord by finding a wife. He who finds a wife finds what is good and gains favor from the Lord. May more and more young men set out to find their wives, provide for them, care for them, give themselves up for them, and should their brides become pregnant, and I hope that they do to the glory of God, because by the way, having children is amazing. It's a great thing then that leads to a decline in the abortion rate long term.